Well, if you have a Bible, Exodus chapter 19 and 20 is where we'll be today. This is on page 63 in the Bibles in front of you, if you want to follow along there. We are continuing in this series through the book of Exodus. And what we've seen is that this is a story about God rescuing his people out of slavery in Egypt and bringing them to this mountain. And they arrive at the mountain today. And at this mountain, God is going to give them the law. These were a people who were slaves for 400 years. God rescued them by doing these miraculous signs and wonders against the Egyptians. He's delivered them through the Red Sea. He's provided for them in the wilderness as they've journeyed to this mountain. And now today they arrive at this mountain, the mountain called Sinai, the mountain of God. And today the Lord is going to give them the Ten Commandments. And they're going to be camped out at Mount Sinai for about a year. This is going to take us all the way through until the book of Numbers. Um, So that's just a little bit of history to catch you up on where we are in the story. But today we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments. And there's something cool that our elders have put together. Uh, There's a little devotional called the Ten Commandments devotional um, that you can pick up. And uh, this is... We have 10 elders, not counting myself, and there are 10 commandments. And so I thought it'd be cool if each of our elders wrote something about each commandment. And so they, one elder took each commandment and then we made a book out of it. So this is just a chance for you to get to study the 10 commandments uh, with uh, some help from our elders. So you can pick up one of those. Um, but today, because Uh, In the devotional book, they talk about each specific commandment. Today, I want to talk more broadly about God's law and his commandments. Why does God give the law? What's the purpose of the Ten Commandments? That's what I want to talk about today. When I was, uh, when I first became a high school pastor, working with high school students, um, which is almost 10 years ago, um, my first month as a pastor, there was this young student who wanted to meet with me. And she was about to graduate from high school, and she wanted to go be an intern with this missions program overseas after she graduated. And part of what she had to do is have her youth pastor fill out a reference form for her. And so she and I met, and there were a few questions that they wanted me to ask her, and so we meet to do that. And as we're going through this process, there are a few questions that I was supposed to ask. And one of them was, why do you want to be part of this program? And she described how she wanted to help people. And she had all these, uh, she just felt called to, to help people and to love people who are less fortunate than her. And I was like, that's awesome. Um, and then I asked, and why do you want to do that? Why do you feel this calling to help people who are less fortunate than you? Why do you feel this calling to to love your neighbor like this, your neighbor around the world? Why do you feel called to do that? And she paused and she thought for a minute. And she said, I guess I just want to know for sure that God loves me. I guess I just want to know for sure that God loves me. 
And that happened in the, like the first month that I was a, a high school pastor. And this became a conversation that has shaped my entire approach to ministry. Because here's what I've learned in ministry, that the way that this girl felt is not all that unique. The way that this girl felt is not all that unique. That it's actually very common for people who have grown up in the church, around the church, or even people who have not grown up in the church and around the church. It's actually pretty common that we approach God as if in order for us to be loved and accepted by him, we need to do our best. We need to be as good and acceptable as we can be so that God will accept us. We naturally look to ourselves when it comes to determining, could I ever be acceptable before God? And so we tend to ask ourselves some questions. How well have I been doing? How disciplined have I been? And there are several different categories, depending on who you are, that you might think through to determine how you're feeling as it relates to God. How am I doing? Am I acceptable enough? Am I pleasing him enough? Am I lovable? You might look at some spiritual disciplines. Have you been having a quiet time? There are a whole bunch of students who grow up and, you know, youth pastors are saying, you ought to read your Bible and pray. And so that's the primary message they take away from the church. And so what happens is when they're not doing that, they feel like, well, God must not love me. Maybe there's a physical rhythm, a physical discipline. Have you been going to bed on time and getting up early? Have you been eating well? Have you been exercising? Whether or not you answer those questions correctly makes you feel in your heart whether or not God would accept you. If you haven't been doing the things that you've said, these are important to me, then you don't feel lovable. Maybe it's related to work. How behind are you on projects? How successful have you been? Maybe it's related to a relationship. How are you doing towards this person that you love? How well are you treating them? How well are you fulfilling your responsibilities towards this person? Or how well are your kids getting along? And if your kids aren't getting along, then that actually feels like a reflection on you, like you're failing. And so depending on how some relationships are working in your life makes you just feel whether or not you are lovable and acceptable to God. Our answers to these questions tell our hearts whether or not God loves us. And even if you know that's not true, that's what feels true. My concern is that many people live their whole lives. They live their whole lives thinking that the primary message of the church or the primary message of the Bible or the primary message of God is that you need to keep God's law so that God will accept you. 
And this is not the primary message of Christianity. The primary message of the Bible, the primary message of God, the primary message of the church is not, you better keep the law so that you can be acceptable to God. The 10 commandments were not given to Israel so that God could accept them. The 10 commandments were given to Israel after they had already been loved and accepted by God based on his sheer grace. So look at Exodus 19, verse four. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This little verse summarizes everything that's happened up to this point. Exodus 1 through 18 summarized right there. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians. You remember the plagues? You remember the Red Sea? You remember how I judged that evil people? But you remember how I've brought you now to myself here at this mountain? How have I done that? I've done it by protecting you from the plagues, by delivering you from the 10th plague, by the blood of the lamb. I've done it by delivering you through the sea. I've done it by providing for you in the wilderness on your way here. And now here we are, God says. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now notice what the verb is there in the second half of verse four. How have the people gotten to God? Did they walk? Did they run? No. They were carried. God says, it's like I'm an eagle and I swooped down and I picked you up and I carried you. The point is, they were not saved from Egypt by something that they did. They were saved by something that God did for them. And then look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. This is part of the Ten Commandments. This is right before the commandments are given. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. I am the Lord, you mean the God. I am the true God. Is that what God is trying to tell them? He's already been proving that he's the true God. That's not what he's saying here. He says, I am the Lord, your God. In other words, Israel, you are already my people. Israel, you already have a relationship with me. Nation of Israel, you already belong to me. I already love you. But he hasn't even given them the law yet. They literally don't even have any commands yet. 
And God is already saying, you're mine. You belong to me. That means that the law is not given to establish a relationship with God. They already have a relationship with God. The law is being given to people who are already in relationship with God. A relationship that God has initiated himself by his sheer grace. And a relationship that was entered into not by works of the law, but by faith. Therefore, God's love and acceptance cannot be based on their obedience to the law. They're already in relationship before the law. Now, here's why I'm harping on this. Because this idea that God establishes a relationship with you apart from your obedience to him, apart from your obedience to his law, this idea goes contrary to the human heart. This is not how the human heart works. Our heart says, if I'm going to be loved and accepted, I better obey. If I'm going to be loved and accepted, I better obey. I better perform. I better do my best. I better put my best foot forward. And this is not just true in our relationship with God. This is true even of how we feel about ourselves. If I'm going to be acceptable and lovable to myself, then I, I got to do better. If I'm going to be loved and accepted by whoever these people are that you want to gain acceptance with, do your best. That's how the world works. And we carry that over into our relationship with God. Our heart says, if I'm going to be loved and accepted, I better obey. God says, you're loved and accepted. So obey. You're already loved and accepted. So obey. Pastor Tim Keller says, if when you hear that, if when you hear that, that you're already loved and accepted, so obey. If when you hear that, right away you say, so then why should I obey? The fact that you ask this question shows that your own heart does not understand how God operates. On a fundamental level, you don't get him. Now think about that. Why is that true? If, if the question that we ask when we hear that, well, God loves me and accepts me, therefore I should obey. He loves me and accepts me before I obey, but I should obey. If what we think is, well, then why should I obey? That just proves that in your heart, you believe that love and acceptance is really dependent on obedience. Because if you already have love and acceptance, why do I need to obey? That just shows that obedience is something that you're depending on for love and acceptance. Do you see that? And so then, what is the purpose of the law? If it's not to bring you into a relationship with God, if it's not to make you lovable and acceptable before God, then what is it for? That's what I want to talk about today. I want to share four things with you that we see in the text for what the law is for. 
Here's the first one. The law shows us that God is holy. The law shows us that God is holy. The word holy means that he's separate. He's different. He's distinct. He's unique. He is not like us. That's what holy means. He is glorious and beautiful and pure. And the giving of the law is intended to help us see that this God who has initiated a relationship with us is holy. That further reiterates the fact that him initiating a relationship with us is simply an act of grace. It's his kindness to us that he would pursue us because he is not like us. And we see God's holiness on display in the giving of the law both in terms of how the law is given and what the law teaches. So look at how the law is given. We're just going to read Exodus chapter 19, verse 9 through 25. So this is going to be a a big section. And the reason is because it's terrifying. (laughs) And the people who originally received the law were terrified because of how holy God is. So listen to this. Exodus chapter 19, verse nine. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear when I speak with you and will always believe you. Moses reported the people's words to the Lord. So he's gonna come in this thick cloud, he says, so that the people will believe you. Do you remember in Exodus chapter four, what Moses' concern was? How are the people gonna believe? God says, when I show up on the mountain and you're the one that I invite to come up and speak to, they'll believe you. Verse 10, and the Lord told Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today. That means make them holy, set them apart. That's what it means. Consecrate them today and tomorrow. What would that look like? Well, they must wash their clothes verse 11, and be prepared by the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Verse 12, put boundaries for the people all around the mountain and say, be careful that you don't go up to the mountain or touch its base. Anyone who touches the mountain must be put to death. Verse 13, no hand may touch him. Instead, he will be stoned or shot with arrows and not live, whether animal or human. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may go up the mountain. So they've got to change their clothes and wash themselves. What what is that for? It's just a way of saying, look, if you're meeting somebody important, don't wear sweatpants, you know? Okay? Before Zoom, you weren't allowed to do that stuff. All right? So God's coming down in person. And so... Change what you're wearing. It's just a sign of, okay, this is important, what we're about to do. And they're supposed to put up boundaries so that nobody goes up the mountain prematurely. Why? Because in order to meet with God, in order to enter his presence, you've got to, you've got to be made clean before you can do that. That's why at this very mountain, in just a few chapters, God's going to tell them how to build a tabernacle. 
so that they can enter his presence, so that they can be in relationship with this God. Not in relationship in the sense that they have a relationship, but in the sense that they get to participate. So they've got to consecrate themselves. They can't just run up the mountain on their own. They cannot approach God casually. That's the point. Verse 14. Then Moses came down from the mountain to the people and consecrated them and they washed their clothes. He said to the people, be prepared by the third day. Do not have sexual relations with women. He says, nobody's sleeping together for the next three days. And it's not because sex would make you a sinner. Sex is actually a good thing. It's because your concentration and your devotion needs to be on the Lord right now on nothing else. That's the point. This is a serious thing that's about to happen. And here it happens, verse 16. On the third day, when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Verse 17. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. Verse 20, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai at the top of the mountain. Then the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain and he went up. Verse 21, The Lord directed Moses, go down and warn the people not to break through to see the Lord. Otherwise, many of them will die. Even verse 22, even the priests who come near the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out in anger against them. Verse 23, Moses responded to the Lord. The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai since you warned us, put a boundary around the mountain and consecrate it. He's like, wait, didn't we already take care of this? That's why we put up the boundary. There's a fence down there. And the Lord replied to him, verse 24, go down and come back with Aaron, but the priests and the people must not break through to come up to the Lord or he will break out in anger against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, God is being extra explicit that you do not need to get bored down there and start taking this thing casually. It will not go well. So go back down. I know you've already got the boundary down there, but go back down there and tell them again not to break through. You're going to be up here for a while. And if they get bored and start taking me casually, it will not go well. And so Moses goes back down and warns them. And then God is going to speak his words, his commandments, his law directly to the people for the 10 commandments in Exodus chapter 20. When all of this happens, this is terrifying to them. And it's all a demonstration that God is holy. He is not like us. He is not someone to be approached casually. At Mount Sinai, God is the one who's coming down to meet with the people. God is the one who is initiating 
this encounter. He's coming down. They are not to go up. This is significant. In order to know God, we need God to reveal himself to us. In order to follow God, we need to listen to God's word. God is the one that we should take seriously, not ourselves. That's the point of this whole setup. And in our culture, like every culture, we resist that. We think that we should get to determine how to go up the mountain to be with God. We think we should get to determine who God is or what God is like, as if God must answer to us. Something that's growing rapidly in our country today is the designation, I'm spiritual, but not religious. I'm spiritual, but not religious. Um, A professor of religion at the University of Virginia defines this as, he says, the spiritual but not religious designation is about seeking rather than dwelling. It's about seeking rather than dwelling. It's about finding rather than discovering, really. In the process of traveling around, reading books, and experimenting with new rituals, you can find your spiritual identity out there. That's the idea of the spiritual, not religious. I'm going to travel around. I'm going to go up the mountain. I'm going to experiment spiritually. I'm going to determine these new rituals that will help me encounter the divine. I'm going to be wise in my own eyes about how I should approach God. And how arrogant would it be for anyone to claim that they know what God is ultimately like? Religion, every religion really just has a piece of the pie. And so that's why you can't trust religion. That's why we're spiritual, but we're not religious. It's like the poem, maybe you've heard of this, where there's these six blind men and they're all looking at the elephant and they're not looking at the elephant. They're at the elephant. You know what I'm saying? They can't see the elephant Um, and they're feeling around and one person's feeling the side and is like, wow, this feels like a big wall. And another person's grabbing the trunk and is like, wow, this feels like, you know, a big snake. And another person is pulling the tail and is like, this is just a rope. And Somebody's got an ear and it's like, this is like a magic carpet or, you know. Um, So this is a real thing. You can look this up online. And (laughs) the idea of this this poem or this uh, parable is that all six of the blind men had some of the truth about what the elephant was. But they couldn't see the elephant. And so they didn't know that They all just had part of it, but they didn't comprehend the whole. And so they really needed all of them to understand what the elephant really was. And the parable is meant to say that that's how religion is. Every religion, every spiritual practice has part of the truth about God, but not the whole truth. And that's why we need to learn from everyone. There are a couple problems with this way of thinking. The first is that the author of the parable knows what an elephant is. 
So it assumes that somebody does know what the elephant is. The second problem, and I heard this from a pastor named Kevin DeYoung, and I've just, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was really good. He said, that is all true. Okay, everybody's feeling around. Nobody knows what the real elephant is. That works unless the elephant says, I'm an elephant. The moment that the elephant speaks, we don't care what you think you were piecing together before. If the elephant says, I'm an elephant, then it's not humble to say, well, but it's really a mystery what this giant creature is. If the elephant says, I'm an elephant, it's not humble anymore to appeal to mystery. It's being hard of hearing. And God has revealed himself. We are not left on our own to figure out what we must do to get to God, to be right with God. We are not on our own to determine what God requires. God has spoken, and that's what's happening here. God is saying, do not try to be wise in your own eyes. Don't try to make up for yourself what you think I would want from you. Just listen to me. Let me tell you what I require. God is holy. The gracious God who has saved us is holy. And so we must approach him on his terms, not ours. And so the people of Israel respond, respond correctly in Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of a trumpet and the mountain surrounded by smoke, by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You speak to us and we will listen, they said to Moses, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. Moses responded to the people, don't be afraid for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and will not sin. And the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the total darkness where God was. The people recognize that God is holy. And so they say, we want a mediator to go in between us and God. We cannot stand before him on our own. The giving of the law is meant to help us see that. Here's the second thing that the law does. The law teaches us to delight in God. The law teaches us to delight in God. We see this at least two places in the text. Look at chapter 19, verse five. The Lord is speaking and he says, now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine. When God says that if you will do this, you will be my possession, the word possession is referring to what a king would have in his private room. So the whole earth belongs to the Lord, just like for a king in these days and in a monarch, uh, a monarchy, the whole kingdom belongs to the king. I mean, he owns everything, but he has some things that are especially his, that are dear to him, that he keeps in his room. And that's the idea of this word here. That's what that word means. It's, 
It's a unique possession that God has. And when God says, you will be my possession, he's already possessed them. So what is he, what is he doing here? This little phrase means that if you will obey, if you will listen and keep my covenant, you will enter into the full enjoyment of, of what is rightfully yours. That's the idea. If you will obey, you will enter into the full enjoyment of what is yours. You are my people. You're my treasured possession. Do you want to experience the full enjoyment of that? Do you want to learn to to delight in me as I delight in you? That's the idea. And this is what we do in in a loving relationship, isn't it? Maybe when you first started dating your spouse, you can remember... You, were, you couldn't wait to find out things about them, things that they liked because you wanted to be able to do some of those things for them. Not because you were hoping to earn something from them, but because you delighted in them being delighted. And this is still the mark of a healthy, loving relationship. Your happiness is tied up with their happiness. You are pleased when they're pleased. This is why you do things with your kids that they don't interest you, but You're interested in your kid and your happiness is tied up with theirs. When they're doing something that they love, you love it. And the law teaches us what God delights in so that we can delight in him. We see this again in Exodus chapter 20, verse three. The very first commandment could be the only commandment and it would be sufficient. God says, do not have other gods besides me. What is he saying? He's saying all of these other commandments flow out of this. Your most fundamental problem is that you take things and make them more important than me, God says. This is the sin under every sin. If you're having a problem with your behavior, something is off with this. Somehow you love something, fear something, trust something more than God. let me ask you a question. If there's a sin that you're struggling with, here's something that you can ask. What is it I'm looking to this thing for that only God can really give me? What is it that I'm looking to this thing for that only God can really give me? Are you struggling to stay focused and manage your time correctly? Maybe it's because you can't say no. And the reason that you can't say no is because you've made an idol out of human approval. And what you really need for your soul to feel safe is for others to approve of you. So you can't say no to anything. But what would it be like to be able to rest in the fact that you are already loved and accepted by a God who's infinitely more holy than whoever else you feel obligated to please, how would that change things? Maybe the reason that you struggle to lie and you find yourself doing this where you embellish things, it's because you want people somehow to think better of you. You're afraid of how you're going to look. Well, underneath that sin is the sin that 
There's something you're delighting in more than the approval of God. The law teaches us to delight in God. The thundering, fiery, terrifying God has come to you. He's rescued you. He's spoken to you. He loves you. If our God is this holy and yet chooses to delight in us, then of course we should delight in him. The third thing that the law does is the law makes us a light to the nations. The law makes us a light to the nations. Look at Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. If you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, verse 6, you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. Priests are people who help others enter the presence of God. That's what a priest is. They intercede. They help other people enter God's presence. God says, Israel, you are going to be a kingdom of priests. The nation as a whole is going to be a priesthood. This whole nation is going to help the world enter into my presence. That's what you're supposed to do. And you keeping the law will play a part in that. He also says, not only will you be this kingdom of priests, but you'll be a holy nation. Remember the word holy means separate, different, unique. He's saying, Not just that each of you individually will be holy, but that as a nation, you'll be holy. Your society is going to look different to the world. Your society is going to be an alternative society. Your society, the way that you guys do things as a nation is going to be unique and different and compelling to the world. So what is different about this society that would enable them to be a priesthood? Why should this society be a light? And that the, the imagery of being a light is putting those two things together, being a kingdom of priests and being a holy nation. So what's supposed to be different about them that's supposed to be attractive and compelling? Their identity is different and their laws are different. Their identity is different. We love a God who first loved us, the nation of Israel could say. We are not building a ziggurat so that we can try to climb up to the gods and gain their approval. We were rescued by our God. We have a God who loved us before we obeyed, before he gave us the law. We have a God who loved us first. That's the God that we love. Therefore, we love our neighbors as ourselves. Isn't it true that when you enter a community seeking love and acceptance, it's totally different than when you enter a community already accepted, not trying to prove yourself. Isn't that true? I remember in college, when I first got to college, I didn't have any friends. I went to school eight hours away. I didn't know a single person. And I had all these close friends in high school. I felt like I could be myself. And when I was with these people, I felt super insecure. And the reason is because I wanted them to accept me. And so here's what I realized, that even the kind things that I would do And even the things that I would do that were technically like me being myself were really me just trying to gain their approval. I wanted their love and acceptance, and so I felt like I needed to perform. And so even the good things that I did for them were actually self-centered. They weren't about them, they were about me. But in a community where you're already loved and accepted, you are free to actually truly love your neighbor. 
And that is what God is establishing with the nation of Israel. He says, I've already rescued you. I am the Lord, your God. So delight in that, delight in me, and you'll be able to love your neighbor. On the most fundamental level, God wants us to know that we are loved and accepted by his grace so that we can be free to truly love others. I don't have to gain love and acceptance from these people because I already have love and acceptance from the holy God. So their identity is going to be different and attractive and their laws. We're, we're not going to go through every law because that's what the Ten Commandments devotional is for, but I just want to highlight a couple things. One of the commandments is that they have a, a weekend, the Sabbath day. Now think about this, all right? Go Google this. Throughout the history of the world have most people celebrated a weekend. Now imagine your life without that. And God from the very beginning is weaving that into how they're supposed to operate. The Jewish nation would be the first nation to say, everybody gets the day off today. Now, later in the industrial revolution, people started to pick up on, oh, people will actually work better and like our company more and we'll get sued less now that unions are rising up if we actually give people a day off. God knew that from the beginning because he rested from his work of creation. And God is weaving that into this nation. So if you're a nation and gosh, we have to work all the time because we're dependent on our own effort to provide. God says, take a break because I'm actually the one who provides for you. Trust me that I'll provide on the days that you don't work. You mean I get the day off? Yeah. That's compelling and attractive. That's the only one I'll talk about for the sake of time. But they're all pretty cool. Okay. The law is helping the people see that in this society, we understand that real freedom is actually experienced under God's authority. God is the one who has rescued us. God delights in us. Therefore, we should delight in him. And it's obedience to what God says, not avoiding what God says that will actually lead to true freedom and happiness. That's what the people of God were supposed to understand. And this is the same idea that Jesus had in mind in Matthew chapter 5 when he says to his followers as he's giving his law, he says, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven. Now notice this. In Exodus 19, when God says that you're gonna be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and in Matthew 5, the point is not you as an individual are supposed to be a light to the world, even though, sure, that's true, I guess. The point is we are gonna be a light to the world. The way that our community operates is going to be a light to the world. That was supposed to be true for the nation of Israel. They failed, but it will not fail in the church age. Jesus says, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. So let me ask you a question. 
Can you square what we're talking about here with a shallow commitment to the people of God? In order for the community of God to be a light to the nations, it has to be a deep community where people are committed to loving one another, to holding one another accountable. And that's one of the reasons that you should commit to a local church, whether it's this one or another one, is because this, the way that we love one another here, is what is meant to be a light to the world. Finally, the law reminds us of our need for grace. The law reminds us of our need for grace. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 8, the people respond and say, we will do all that the Lord has spoken. He hasn't even spoken anything yet. (laughs) They don't even know the law yet, and they're like, we'll keep it. After the law is given, Exodus 24, verse 3, the people say, we will do everything that the Lord has commanded. But they won't. The law was good for restraining evil. It was good for teaching us what what God requires. And it's good for convicting us of sin. The law was never meant to save us because it never could save us. Even with our best intentions, yes, we'll do everything the Lord has said. We fall short. All of us have broken God's law and fall short of the glory of God. The law is a constant reminder that we can never live up to God's standards on our own. We all need to be saved, not by keeping the law, but by God's grace. And that is why God At the right time, while we were still under the law, sent someone to keep the law. Every standard that you need to meet, Jesus met. But rather than receive a reward for that, instead he took the curse for breaking the law. So that lawbreakers, could go free and receive the blessing. Jesus died on a cross, paying the penalty that sinners deserve to pay. And then God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. And it's because of Jesus and his perfect obedience. It's because of Jesus and his perfect sacrifice, and it's because of Jesus and his powerful resurrection that sinners like us can ascend the mountain. As a church, what if we understood our identity this way? What if we understood that we are people 
who have been rescued by God, not because of who we are or what we have done, but simply because of who he is and what he has done. And what if we committed to saying no to our sin and yes to God as a result? What if we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength? What if we love our neighbors as ourselves? What kind of a light could that be? Let me pray for you and ask the Holy Spirit to help us with this. Father, we want to humbly come before you and recognize that you are holy. God, we cannot ascend your mountain on our own. Only the one who has clean hands and a pure heart can do that. But God, we praise you that there is one of those. The man, Jesus, your son. So God, would you help us to trust in him? Would you help us by the power of your spirit to fulfill your law? It's in Jesus' name that I ask, amen.